Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. Um, man, especially if you're, you're new to Ridgeline, it's really, really important uh, if you want to have a sense of who we are, that you know that um, we deeply believe that the Bible says that God created us for transforming relationship with him. That he desires to, to live an active and real and true relationship with us. And, uh, and so last week in the start of this series, we looked at uh, a few promises from Jesus uh, describing from his vantage point what is held out to us in relationship with him. And if you were here, then you'll remember that, that, that as we pressed into those three promises, when you do that, what most Christians tend to identify is this gap between what he has promised and what we experience. And, and by that, I mean that, that we believe that Jesus promised us so much more than what most of us are experiencing in relationship with him. And, and that that really is problematic, that we are settling for so much less than what is actually offered to us. And so we have been invited into this very deep relationship, but in reality, it oftentimes feels like sort of empty ritual, where we come to church or we have some spiritual disciplines like prayer or reading our Bibles and, and we perform these things, which are good, but they're not an end in and of themselves. They're meant to just be these tools that position us to have a relationship with Jesus. And so the question is, how do we actually position our lives in such a way that we get to experience the relationship that Jesus promised us? And that is where we are spending the entirety of our fall season together and, uh, and the purpose of this series and what we're leaning into. How do we position our lives to experience the transforming relationship that Jesus promised us? And so this morning, as we get back into this, I, I want to just kind of kick off with what I would argue is a pretty significant just life principle that has spiritual implications, but this is true in, in all of our relationships. And that principle is this. There is no meaningful relationship without mutual presence. There is no meaningful relationship without mutual presence. Meaning, you can't have a relationship with someone who isn't there, right? And, and some of us uh, probably experienced this in some of our parental relationships. So maybe like me, you grew up where you had a, a parent who was physically absent from your home. Maybe they worked constantly, or, or maybe they were just like, gave birth to you and they were out. And that was my experience. And so you, you don't have relationship with that person because they're just like literally not there. But I think more frequently, what some people experience growing up is they have a parent who might be physically present, but they are emotionally absent. If you experienced that, where they're there, but they're not there. They're present physically, but their mind and their heart is 
chasing after or lingering on or thinking about or focused on a myriad of other things, but it wasn't you in that relationship. And, and I think one thing that I've definitely seen is how inattention can be equally damaging as absence, if not more. To have someone who is physically present but um, mentally or emotionally absent can be more damaging than having a, someone in your life that's just like not there. And so the point in this is just to say that you can't have a meaningful relationship with someone who isn't present. And I think that's a big part of why we don't feel like we have a relationship with God so much of the time. Because if you think about it, we can't see Jesus, right? And, 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 and many times we don't feel his presence with us. And many of us are very unaccustomed to actually hearing his voice as well. So all signs point to him being absent. But what I want to put before you this morning is this. What if, what if the problem is not God's presence, but our awareness? What if the problem is not that God, even though based on what we experience, it would seem as though all signs point to God being absent. What if the problem is not his presence? It's our awareness. And so this morning, I want to wrestle with the question, where is God? And if there is a, a question, I would bet that most Christians have asked a multitude of times in the past 18 months, it would be, where is God? And the number of times in our own home that we've had a conversation about like, why, why doesn't God just like fix this? So I want to wrestle this morning with, with where is God? The good news is um, a lack of awareness of God's presence is not new to us. Like that's not unique to our culture and our time in life. The scriptures are actually filled with experiences of normal people like you and me that, that experience all of the same things that we experience and had all of their own questions about where is God in the midst of this. The number of Psalms that you can find and read where David or one of the psalmists is like, hey, I, I don't see you working in all of this. Everything's awful. You're doing nothing. It seems like you're not here. So this is not a new thing. We have a lot of places that we could look, but this morning I want us to look at Genesis chapter 28. So if you have a Bible, <clears throat> turn in it to the first chapter in the Bible, which is Genesis. Uh, the word Genesis means beginnings. And so go to chapter 28, and I want to look at uh, a story that I've loved since I was a kid um, and, and what it teaches us about our, our own awareness. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I got a new swivel stool that I'm pretty fired up about because I can go all the way around. I don't have to just look at the room with my neck. Now I can turn my whole body. It's game changing for me <laughs> and going to be quite distracting for you. All right. So Genesis chapter 28, let me jump into this story I'll read a few verses and then I'll fill in some of the background for us, all right? So Genesis chapter 28, uh, I want to start in verse 10. It starts like this. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. All right, so here, right out of the chute, here's what you need to know. If you're not familiar with Jacob, you don't know the backstory of this, the backstory is very, very important. Jacob is not on a spiritual pilgrimage. He has not set out to meet with God in some deep and meaningful way. Jacob, at this point in his story, is on the run. One of the most consistent 
things about the character of Jacob that we learn in the book of Genesis is that he was a schemer. And in his most recent deceit, he had, he had cut his brother so deeply that his brother Esau had vowed to kill him. Now, like me, many of you have siblings. I had conflict with my siblings for sure growing up. But like, you know you did something bad when your siblings are like, I'm now going to commit the rest of my life to finding a way to murder you. Like, that's a bad, like you, you did something wrong. And Jacob had. He had stolen Esau's birthright, which was more than just about financial provision. It was essentially his, the entirety of his future. Jacob had put this plan together with his mom, <clears throat> who apparently also was a bit of a schemer, and they concocted this whole plan to steal this birthright from Esau so that Jacob would have it. And so Esau is understandably angry about that. And so he is on the run so that his brother does not kill him. Now his dad, Isaac, had sent him uh, to a place called Padam Aram, which is where his uncle Laban lived. And he had sent him there. He was very concerned that Jacob was going to marry a Canaanite woman. He wanted to marry within their own people group. And so he sent him off to this place. And that's where Jacob is at the start of this story. But I want you, before we go any further, I want you with that knowledge in mind to just consider his emotional state on this night as he gets ready to go to sleep. He's definitely afraid. We know that from other places in his story. He was very afraid of Esau. Jacob was a bit more uh, like, he was, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but like it seems like of the two brothers, he was like the weaker for sure. Esau was like this hunter gatherer, like for some reason the Bible's always really clear. Esau was super hairy. And so I, I don't know. I don't know if Jacob had like alopecia and just no hair whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the point is to say that e Esau was like maybe what we would consider like traditionally masculine and bigger than, physically bigger than Jacob. And so Jacob's pretty afraid, which is the appropriate response when your sibling vows to kill you. But in addition to his fear, he also would have been extremely lonely because he's been displaced from his home. He is literally on his own in this night. He is stressed because his life has been disrupted in every way imaginable. His future that he saw for himself has been disrupted. His entire life has kind of come unglued. And so as he lays down this night, he literally hits rock bottom as he grabs a stone to be his pillow. And so if you're ever wondering, how do you know that the wheels have really fallen off your life? it's when you are using a stone for a pillow. Just like for sure, you took a wrong turn somewhere. And that's where Jacob is. And so <clears throat> when you read this story, all signs point to Jacob being in a horribly um, uncomfortable season of his life. Like if I were to hang a word over, what's Jacob experiencing on this night? It would be the word discomfort. His relationships are strained. His future is uncertain. And everything about his present moment screams at him. Look at what your decisions have done to your life. Because he has nothing at this point. And so he has hit rock bottom. And he has every reason to believe in this moment that God has abandoned him. I mean, he's betrayed his family. He's betrayed God because he's lied and sinned and run from God. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems to be human nature that we equate comfort with blessing. 
and blessing with God's presence and favor. Have you noticed that? So when our lives are good, we feel like, whew, I am experiencing the blessing of God. He is with me. He loves me. And for some reason, the moment life is hard, we go, why does God hate me? Where has he gone? Why has he left me? And that's not new. Again, I think there's something in human nature that we just wrongfully equate comfort with blessing and blessing with God's presence. And so Jacob is in this season where his life is now completely absent of comfort. And this, therefore, is a sign to him that God is not with him and present. But little did he know that his rock bottom moment was gonna be the very place that God's presence intersected with his awareness. Let's keep reading. So he lays down his heads on this stone and verse 12, somehow he falls asleep, I don't know how. And it says he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky and God's angels were going up and down on it. And the Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So it's in in the midst of this dream when Jacob is like literally at his lowest moment that God speaks this history altering promise over him. And it's multifaceted. He promises he and his people a home that this land that he has stopped to sleep on, that God was going to give that land to to him and to his future offspring. He promises that a nation will literally be birthed out of his line. He promises uh, to bless the world through him and through his, which is an amazing promise. That would be amazing. You're getting ready to have your first kid. And God speaks to you and he says, I'm going to bless the entire world through your family. And that was the blessing that God spoke over Jacob. And most importantly, he promised his presence with him. And when I think about everything that God promises and the sheer fact that God chooses this moment to speak to Jacob, I see this as one of the most incredible pictures of grace in the entire Old Testament. Sometimes people will say like, man, it really seems like the God of the Old Testament is so different than the God of the New. And I say, no, when we really pay attention, we do see the same character in God in the Old Testament and the New. For instance, he is a God of compassion and grace. And this is a display of grace because God moves toward Jacob rather than away from him in his darkest hour. Like you would think, like this is the kind of stuff in our culture that gets you canceled. You do something like we we live in this this time where it's like there's this like very elusive sort of 10 and 2 in which everybody has to live inside of. The problem is the 10 and 2 is moving all the time. And the moment anyone steps outside of that 10 and 2, you just get canceled. And that's kind of our culture. And the good news is that God doesn't cancel people. The good news of Jesus is that he moves toward us when we are at our lowest, even when our lowest is our own fault. Even when our lowest is the result of something awful that we have done. And that was Jacob's story. And so in this moment, 
When Jacob's head would have been hung in shame because of what he's done, it's like God lifts his chin and looks into his eyes and he says, I'm with you and I'm not going anywhere. And I'm going to alter history out of the ashes of your darkest moment. It's an amazing display of grace. And so Jacob then, look what happens after this dream. In verse 16, it says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, I love this sentence so much. Surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I think that sentence, that first sentence out of his mouth, I think that summarizes better than anything else our reality. Surely God is in this place and I didn't know it. It's not like Jacob, when he, when he laid down that night to go to sleep, he was not in the presence of God. And when he woke up, then he was. God had always been there with him. He just didn't know it. He was not aware that God was in his midst. And that is exactly what is true for all of us. There is nowhere you go that God is not. There is never a time You've never had a moment in your life in which God was not with you. The challenge is, we're just not aware of it. Which got me thinking this week, like what are, what are some factors in our lives that diminish our awareness of God's presence? Because you know, it is like, it's like a muscle. It can be developed. You can see God active in your life more than you do right now. You can and it's not just like monks and pastors and mystics and weirdos. A lot of spiritual people are kind of weird. It's okay. It's not just people, like normal people, everyday people can, can have the, their awareness of God's presence be lifted and we can see him and hear him and feel him more. But it leads me to wonder, like, what are the things that diminish our awareness? So I wrote, I wrote down a few, see if you can find some of this in your own life. The first is um, running at a frantic pace. And I think like, this is, this is the American problem. Our pace of life, and we have, to, like, we have to reconcile this. Our pace is oftentimes not congruent with experiencing the presence of God. It's just not. And if someone figures out how to write a book with some hack to experience God on the go, <laughs> they're gonna do all right. The problem is that's not a thing. And so we have a choice to make. Will we continue to run at a pace that is incongruent with experiencing the presence of God? Because what I, I feel like less and less do I have, because I've been guilty of it, and so I don't want to do this anymore, and less and less do I have ears to hear people complain about not experiencing the presence of God all the while, not living a life that's positioned to experience it. That's not on God, that's on us. And so if you want to experience him, you have to position your life for it. And that is going to involve pace. And I think a really important, I didn't write reflection questions for you this week, but a really good reflection question for you would be, what is it that drives me to run so hard, so fast, so frequently? What's beneath that? Some kind of fear, trying to prove ourselves, trying to keep up 
with, in some sort of comparative way to the people around us? Like, what is it that has us driving so fast all the time? So one thing that will certainly diminish our awareness of God's presence is running at a frantic pace. Here's another one. It's giving emotions dominance in your life. Giving your emotions dominance in your life. Now, if you call Ridgeline home, you've been here for a while, you know, I want to clarify this. I've, for two years, I've been working very, very hard to learn to integrate my own emotional health into my relationship with Jesus. And so that's, so we're like pro-emotion at Ridgeline, okay? We're not the place that tells you like emotions are bad and that there are good emotions and bad emotions. There are emotions, God is an emotional being. We are created in his image, and so we have emotions too. But your emotions should not be your king or queen in your life. And so if you've ever had one of those times where maybe it's fear or anxiety or anger and rage, where you get into like what I would describe as like an emotional tornado, and your emotions are just raging inside of you, and, and that's, all, that's all you can see. It's all you can hear. It is all you're experiencing is the emotion. That means the emotions have dominated you. And when our emotions dominate us, it diminishes our awareness of God's presence in our midst. So running at a frantic pace, secondly, would be giving emotions dominance. Here would be a third thing, uh, numbing our senses, numbing our senses. Now, the, the obvious thing would be like drugs and alcohol have a way of numbing our senses. And so if you're walking around in a haze in life, typically that's going to mean that your awareness of God's presence with you is going to be diminished. And, and often, like I grew up in the church, so like I went to youth group and I've been told since like the moment I came out of the womb that like alcohol's bad and you know, all this kind of, and, and I've, I was never really taught that the reason that it's important for us to keep our eyes on things like substances that have the ability to numb our senses is that it impacts relationship with God. It's always been framed for me as rule keeping. And I, I don't, God has no rules that are not relational. And so if we are living in such a way where our senses are numbed to his presence, we're not relating and that's a problem. But it's not just drugs and alcohol. It's also Netflix and it's food, and your devices. You should just grab a seat in case I miss anything else. You can just jump right in. That's so helpful, you're right. But it's just this like constant distraction would be another word for it, which is what the, the devices are so effective at is just constantly distracting us, which numbs our senses and we are not aware like, like literally, if this story was told in a modern telling, it would be like someone for once in the day looked up from their phone and they realized, oh, God was in this place. And I didn't know. Get off Instagram, dummy. That'll like super help. So running at a frantic pace, giving emotions dominance, numbing our senses. Number four is living an unexamined life. Living an unexamined life. I'm going to do some more teaching on this, how we actually live an examined life uh, in this fall, which I'm really, really excited about. But the reality is there is just so much that happens in our lives that we don't ever really take stock of. And so what happens is we miss where God was present and working because we just weren't looking for him. And so I wonder what would happen in our lives 
if we started to live in a way and we adopted some practices in our lives that help us to intentionally examine I'm not talking about like these big mountaintop moments. I'm talking about like the mundane, just day-to-day interactions that we have. If we examine those things carefully and closely and we see that God was present in it and he was working. But when we live in an unexamined way, it diminishes our awareness. And then lastly, I would argue is choosing an isolated lifestyle. Choosing an isolated lifestyle. You know, one of the reasons it's so important for us to have friends to follow Jesus with is because sometimes, uh, no matter how heightened your awareness is, no matter how intentional you are, no matter how dialed in your practices are in life, there are going to be seasons in your life where you're like, I just can't seem to find God in this. And one of the reasons that community is such a gift to us is that we can sit together and we can listen to one another and, and sometimes when you're not in the thick of it, you have the objectivity to be able to look and go, oh, I see God all over this. And someone can speak in and help you be able to see that God is in fact present. He is working. And if nothing else, even if they say nothing, oftentimes you can experience the presence of God with you because of the, the, the compassionate presence of a person with you. That, that there's something in our souls that that reminds them, and God, I sense God with me in this because I'm not alone. Which is why, if, if you don't have that in your life, which is why we're going to give so much work and attention to our squads uh, this fall. And squads, again, are just friends who follow Jesus together. So we're working to launch eight new squads uh, this fall. Uh, we're going to do two waves of training, one at the end of this month and then one at the end of October. There'll be four weeks each. And we're working to get these eight squads up and off the ground so that all of us can experience a connected and interdependent life that God intended for us. And one of the reasons for that is for this very thing, so that we can have help and encouragement in experiencing God's presence in our lives. So if you've not signed up for one of those, you can do it on the Church Center app in a few minutes. Pastor Tyler will explain that app to you, but get signed up for that uh, as we have limited space in, in both of those, and then we'll launch more in the new year as well. So running at a frantic pace, giving emotions dominance, numbing our senses, living an unexamined life, and choosing an isolated lifestyle, all of these factors will diminish our awareness of God's presence with us. But by God's grace, Jacob has this miraculous moment, and then even though he wasn't looking for God in this rock bottom moment, that God invades his awareness and he realizes God is in this place. And I want you to notice the way that he responds. Look at verse 18. It says, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. When Je- then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. I got to say, I feel like Jacob put so much qualification on this. Am I the only one? I was reading through this going, dang, dude, like you just had a, like a, a vision, a dream of God with you speaking over you. Maybe just be like, I'm in. But he's like, <laughs> If God provides for me, if he watches over me, if, he, if everything goes exactly the way that I want, then God's, wow, huge sacrifice, brother, huge sacrifice. <laughs> but there is something really human about that and that we all do the same thing. 
And it says, verse 22, this stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house. And I will give you a 10th of all that you give me. So notice he does commit his, himself. He commits his life to following God and says that God is going to be his God. He determines to give in worship. When he gives a 10th, that's where we get the word tithe from. And so it's a, still a practice that, that many of us here still practice where we give a 10th, some of us, a literal 10th of what God gives us back to him by giving it to our local church. This is where that practice comes from. It's not just about people trying to steal money from you. There are some very corrupt experiences that people have had, um, but this is not that place by any means. We are trying to move the mission of Jesus forward. And as Pastor Tyler explained this morning, we make that happen together. And so Jacob uh, gives back. But then I think the thing that's the most amazing is that Jacob chooses to mark God's movement in this moment with an altar where he takes this stone that he had slept on, which, which just hours earlier would have been a reminder of how bad his life was, how far he had fallen from grace. And then all of a sudden it becomes this centerpiece of worship for him. He anoints it with oil and he marks this movement of God in his life through that altar. And I think that one of the great deficiencies oftentimes within our own Protestant stream of faith is that we don't really do a good job of this. And I think a lot of it again has to do with our pace, but even when we do have these moments with God, oftentimes we're like, all right, thanks God, gotta get on to the next thing. And we don't mark these moments so that we will remember that God moved. And those markers are really important in those seasons where we don't feel God's presence. We need to be reminded, all right, I may not be feeling him right now. I may not be hearing God's voice for some reason in this season, but I have all of these prior experiences when I know God has been faithful and I know God has moved and I know God has spoken. We need altars in our lives. So when I, uh, when I was, uh, I told you a little bit about this a few weeks ago, but when I was in Ohio about a month ago, I had to do this thing. I told you it was called a soul terrain which is I had to draw a picture that was uh, descriptive in some way of the state of my soul in that season going into the residency. And I was really anxious about it and insecure about it because I'm not an artist like that. And, um, and it just, I really just felt like it was like show and tell. So it felt kind of condescending. And uh, so the whole week, I have this like in my bag, this picture that I drew. And, and all week I was just dreading this moment above all the moments. And it just seemed like the week was, it was taking forever to get there. And the night before I was going to meet with my group and, and show my, my uh, masterpiece. If you, I mean, uh, if you want to call, some people are calling it a, a masterpiece because it's that good. You're going to just wait. I brought it. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, that we had that silent retreat the day before. And so I was, I was out on this walk and I was in the middle of this field and I was, talking to God and telling him that I just like, I can't, I'm anxious about this, presenting this, like, I think this is dumb, it's embarrassing, I can't wait to be done with this, I'm gonna throw it away. And I, and I had a moment where not, not audibly, but internally, God spoke to me more clearly than almost any other time in my life. And he said to me, it's not about the picture. It's about what that picture represents. And the more you keep going on and on about how bad this picture is, 
and about how mad you are about having to do this, the more you diminish and disrespect the difficult work that we have done together over the last two years. And then he said this to me, that picture is your altar. And so I went to Walmart and I got a frame for it in rural Ohio. I went to Wal- I want to, I feel like you're missing the important part of my sacrifice. In rural Ohio, I went to Walmart. I was the only person in a mask and it was like taking my life into my own hands. <laughs> so this is, this is my altar. And now it lives in my study, um, not because it's a masterpiece, but it, because it reminds me of a, of a two-year period in which God has worked, but also, and most significantly, a moment in which God met with me and spoke to me. And so on Thursday afternoon, when I'm in the middle of just normal everyday tasks, and I look up and I see this altar, I'm reminded Man, that was a powerful moment of experiencing God's presence. And I really, really want, I really, really want us to make altar creation a part of our culture here. And I think one of the most powerful ways that we can do that is not, I'm not going to make everybody draw their picture and present it, though that would be fun to invite you into my discomfort. (laughs) Every Sunday, a different person has to stand up here with their picture And Tyler's going first. (laughs) But I think one of the the easiest ways and the most powerful ways for us to do this is by sharing our stories of the everyday moments in which we experience God. And so what I want to see become normative here is that we have a regular element in our worship service that we call altars, where someone comes up and they, and again, not a, like it doesn't have to be a miraculous healing. It doesn't have to be this sort of Jacob dream vision that you have, though if God moves in those ways, praise the Lord, that's amazing. But just everyday moments in which you experience and encounter the presence of God. When like Jacob, you have this moment of awareness where you say, man, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. And so imagine if every single week here, Someone in our church, like there's an aspect in which I think it's more powerful when it comes from the body and not from me. Because I think most people probably go, well, this is like your full-time job. We like kind of hope you're spending time with God. Otherwise, what's the point of you? (laughs) So admittedly, I could, by God's grace, I, I could do this. I could share some story every week of ways in which I'm experiencing the presence of God. But I give an immense amount of attention to that because that's my vocation. And so I think it's more important, imagine if we had 52 stories a year of ways in which God has met normal people in everyday life. Think about the way that that would shape the reputation of our church in our city. You'd have to start to think like, wow, Ridgeline's that church where God meets with his people every day. And I think that's way better than any marketing crap that we could put together. What if this was a place where we positioned our lives for increased awareness of God's presence in our everyday life and that we marked those moments with the altars of our own stories? And so what I want you to do is if you have something comes to mind in the last few weeks at some point, even in your life, it doesn't have to be recent, though I would love to have it be like recent stuff. 
If a story comes to mind of a, of a powerful moment that you had with God or a time in which your awareness of him was heightened, I want you to email myaltar at ridgeline.church. Got that? Super easy to remember, myaltar at ridgeline.church. Just email a summary of that story in, and then we're gonna begin to include those and invite people to just briefly share those stories during our worship service, which I know the public speaking thing is super, super scary, but I'm telling you, it will be validating for you to verbalize that story to another person, helps you to go, God, God really did meet me in that moment. But then it's so encouraging to all of us that we get to hear stories of how God is doing that. So my altar at ridgeline.church. And Pastor Tyler is actually gonna be the first one to share next week. He just had an amazing example of this that I'm excited for you to hear about next Sunday. So my altar at ridgeline.church. Let's make this normative in our culture. All right? All right, if I were to boil everything down that we've talked about this morning, it would, it would come to this big idea. Few things develop relationship with God like deeper awareness of his presence. Few things develop relationship with God like deeper awareness of his presence. To come back to where we started, you cannot have a relationship with someone who is not there. And so if we are not aware of God's presence in our midst, we will always have this sense that he is absent and he is not. The problem is not his presence, it's our awareness. So we are gonna very patiently and slowly continue to work as a church to position our lives in such a way that we experience his presence in every season of life. And so as we close, I wanna invite you to just bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. And Shannon's gonna sing a song over us that I want you to really just seek to receive these words. They are written from God's vantage point, looking over our lives. And they're a reminder from God that he has been with us in even our darkest moments. And so I want you, just very practically right now, I want you to think about one of the hardest maybe even most painful moments in your life. And that, that might, might be super recent, man. You might be like, it's now. Maybe you're in a season that feels like the darkest, most difficult season that you've ever been in. But I want you to just think about a difficult, dark, or painful moment from your past. And I know it's not fun or comfortable to wade back into pain. And so I want you to just trust me for a second. And I want you to allow yourself to feel that moment or that season. Because I want you to hear this. God was there. And I want you to know that when you hurt, so did he. And that when you cried, so did he. He was there. 
as near as possible. The Psalms tell us that God captures every tear we cry because he's there. He was with you and he will be with you. He feels what we feel. He comforts, he sustains, and he heals. And sometimes all it takes is knowing that we weren't alone, that we hadn't been abandoned, but he was present with us. And just that awareness takes us a long way toward healing. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would invade our awareness right now. Lord, don't don't let us leave this moment blind to the fact that you are here right now, that healing is accessible to us right now, that freedom is accessible to us right now, that comfort is accessible to us right now, that strength is accessible to us right now. And so I pray that you would work and move and heal and have your way. I thank you that you have never left us, that you will never leave us. Help us to trust. And would you please increase our awareness of you in our midst. In Jesus' name.